Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yo, what's up? I'm Jason Lee. Welcome to the Absolutely Podcast, where we're going to have those difficult conversations and we're looking for the win. Coming up, I get to speak to David Badil, been a long time coming, 25 years in the making, but we finally get to have that conversation. Tune in. David, great to meet you. So, before we say anything else, I've come here to say I'm sorry, Jason. I'm sorry for the sketches that we did on Fantasy Football, me and Frank Skinner in the 1990s, that you were on the end of. I'm sorry for wearing a costume and makeup that was racist. I'm sorry. I've said I'm sorry in print, I've said I'm sorry on TV, but there's something missing. I, and I have felt this myself for a long time, which is what we lost sight of in those sketches was the human being at the other end of those sketches, which is you. And so therefore, I need to come and say it to you as a person. I need to acknowledge your humanity, which is obviously there, and obviously we should have known it was there, but somehow we lost sight of it. And I'm ashamed and remorseful and upset. And I've written about it for a long time, but I can't, seeing you now, it's clear to me. It feels clear to me how, how deeply I do feel that. So that's what I've come to say. I'm sorry. And I hope we can talk. I hope we can talk and find some constructive way of sharing whatever we need to share. Yeah, I think it was important for people listening, watching this for the first time, to realise that we've never spoken. We've never spoken. You know, there's been a lot of talk, a lot of people have spoken on behalf of us. I've, I've listened to you speak publicly. People have probably tried to defend me on behalf of myself. Um, I mean, my first question would be, you know, why has it taken 25 years for you to to reach out, really, and, and have this conversation? You know, man to man, I was always contactable. Um, people contact me all the time, whether it be through my clubs or through my organisation I work with. I just felt that might have been prevalent at some stage for you to just reach out and say, you know what, what we're doing now, we could have had many, many years ago. Yeah, well, that's my bad as well. So I'm sorry for it, for it having taken so long. I mean, to explain it is complicated. There's there's shame, there's awkwardness, there's fear, there's a, a sense of trying to make sense of it. For a while, you try and justify it in your head. So when 
you first, when I first started to have to think about it properly, I think I thought, well, we did loads of footballers. We made fun of loads of footballers on that show and dressed up as loads of footballers in cartoonish ways. So surely that makes it okay. Whatever else I might have thought at the time, it, it takes a little while. I mean, a long time in this case, but it took a while for me to understand, I think, um, how much we fucked up. Um, and I think also, you know, a sort of re-education to some extent. So particularly in terms of the racist element of it, I think my own experiences, my own understanding of that conversation has changed without any doubt. And also, and I don't know, I don't, I don't offer this up as like, you know, so you have to take pity on me or anything, but stuff happened to me since then that made me understand how you must have felt. Because as, it, as I became more, more well-known, and particularly as I put my Jewish identity a bit more front foot, suddenly I was getting racist abuse. I mean, on Beau Selector, uh, Lee Francis did me in three sketches as an extreme Jew with a big nose and a big black hat just saying the word Jew over and over again, and I hated it. Yeah. I hated it. And it did start to shift in me at that point, like, of course, this is how Jason Lee must have felt, right? And then at football itself, as a Chelsea fan, I started to talk about this thing, the, the use of what I call the Y word in football matches. And then there was a moment where me and my brother, who go to Stamford Bridge every home game, were violently abused by someone for being Jewish. And again, I thought, well, I need to speak about this, but also it's got, I've got this issue in my head, which is that I was party to something similar to a member of another minority. Now, it, this doesn't answer your question. I mean, it tries to answer your question about why it's taken me so long. A lot of it is just shame and confusion and fear mm. of having to come out and speak to you, someone who I wronged, and admit this is, at, this is mine and Frank Skinner's bad. Okay. But it is also me trying to make sense of some of that other stuff. I mean, you've touched on some of the stuff that, you know, we'll, we'll talk about, you know, later on during this discussion, but obviously I watched the show. I remember the show. Um, I believe uh, an invitation was extended to me to go on the show. You know, you had Stuart Pearce on the show, who was my team captain at the time. He came back, he said that, obviously, you guys would like me to come on the show. I mean... Straight away, my inclination around that was there was no chance I was going to go on that show and be part of that. And I think for people listening, watching, they 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 might question, you know, why did why didn't I go on the show? Have I not got a sense of humour? I've got a sense of humour, you know, like like everybody. I think to survive in the industry and what we do, you can't take yourself too seriously. But for me, it was different. You know, I understood that being a footballer, being anybody that's doing something that a lot of people are jealous of, to just be perfectly honest. Um, you can be ridiculed and people can take the piss. So I've had to deal with that from an early age. You know, there's always been people that have said I've not got the talent or I'm not good enough. Um, but this felt different. This felt more sinister, you know. Um, the blackface, for one. You know, as soon as I saw the first sketch, you know, my heart dropped. I'm not going to lie. I thought, wow, you know, this... This guy, you're taking the piss, I'm not going to lie, you know, seriously violating me in, in every single way possible. 
the dreadlock situation, you know, culturally, I mean, I'm going to ask you the question, culturally, do you, un you know, have you got any understanding of the importance of black people who wear dreadlocks? I have now, Jason. Um, I think, as I say, what was wrong in the thinking at the time was not to understand that the respect is due to that beyond that that we might have extended to basically white footballers. Mm. I think that was what we didn't understand. We didn't understand that doing, you know, Glenn Hoddle with a massive head or doing, you know, even stuff that is probably quite upsetting for them, like Peter Beardsley as Quasimodo or whatever, you know, that falls into the realm of taking the piss in quite extreme ways. Yeah, because, that's, that's crossing the line, David. Yeah, no, you no. Know, I, for, for, for Peter Beersley to be depicted in that way, you talk, you're looking at somebody's appearance and identity, and I know for a fact he, he would never have took kindly to the fact no, that I someone agree was, with that. I agree with that, you know, was doing that. I completely agree with that. I mean, the thinking at the time, which is not, I'm not offering this up as a defence, I'm trying to explain what the thinking at the time, I think, was that that show was a show more like a fan show than like a pundit show. And because me and Frank are football fans, we'd grown up on the terraces where people are abusive and extreme. And that definitely fed in to the comedy in a way, in ways that definitely did cross the line. I'm, I completely agree with that now. Okay. And I think that, I think feeling hurt myself when I've been depicted, made that clearer and clearer to me as time went on beyond that. But I, I'm not offering any excuses. I'm offering it up purely saying, okay, so we thought this, that made us lose sight, again, of the human beings. I agree with you about Peter Beersley. Mm. And I agree with you, by the way, that there's a racist component to what we did with you, and then there's a bullying component. That's important. And no, you know, no, you know why that. that's important? Because not nearly enough people would probably agree with you on that fact. And the fact that I work in an EDI space and I'm prepared to learn from, you know, my personal experiences over the years is that I'm trying to educate people. We're trying to talk about uh, different contexts and situations where people maybe don't fully understand, have not got enough awareness around how what they do and say could be hurtful, which leads me on to, you know, can you give me an example of you got any idea how you feel that may have impacted my life since? Um what happened to you? How it may have impacted your life since? Yeah, how, how do you feel that sketch well, I, has I, I, impacted my life since? Well, you seem like a really robust guy, having met you now, but I assume that it affected your mental health. I assume it took you a long time to, you know, feel that your self-image had become right after that. And I assume it was really difficult, but I don't know the specifics, no. Okay, well, it's, it's, it's important for me to ask. I'm, I'll answer that question for you. I mean... Um, you know, I worked extremely hard from a young age, from the age of 16. I, I played in all the divisions, but I kind of worked my way up to the Premier League. And people won't be able to see the timeline around that. You started to involve me in your show during my most successful period of my career. You know, if it wasn't for the fact I was doing well and playing in the Premier League, I probably wouldn't have come under your radar. Um, I started the season extremely well, probably scored six out of the first eight games in the Premier League. Um, I was leading the line. Um, I was playing all the games in Europe. You know, I was not in the Forest's main 
go to in terms of a striker. And and some of the sketches, I mean, this is where we can manipulate anything that we watch. I can remember a sketch with Everton where you had behind the goal, you kind of made the whole width of the pitch a goal shape, you know. And you use a bit of footage which showed a shot in that game where I spun a shot off that went wide. I actually scored in that game and put in arguably a man in a match performance. We won the game, I scored, but that's what we focused on. So that's what people remember. And I think the, the biggest problem for me over the years has been I'm trying to reclaim and trying to show people that, you know what, I'm not a clown. Yeah. I'm not a joke figure. I'm someone to be taken seriously. People that know me know that's not me, you know, but those that don't know me, and this is what I have to deal with as well, is the, you know, the microaggressions. You know, people that meet me for, meet me for the first time. Right. You know, can you imagine somebody that comes up to you, they don't know me, and they would address me as, oi, pineapple head. Yeah. Or, are you the guy that used to have a pineapple on your head? And I'm like, hold on a minute. Let me correct you straight away. No, no. Actually, I had dreadlocks, which I tied up just to play football. It was only when I was playing a match day that I wore my hair, you know, tied up in, in, in that way. So straight away, I'm on the back foot. Straight away, I have to assess the situation with people. Are they trying to demean me? Are they really that ignorant that they don't understand that what they're saying is going to be offensive to me? So I have to really assess it. And also the situation I could be in. So I could be on a crowded tube. I go to a lot of football matches. I do a lot of work around football. Mob mentality. You say you're a fan, you're part of that element. You help fuel that aggression, which supporters tend to just, mm. it's their go-to mechanism. You know, that herd mentality. If one says it, two say it. Before you know it, you've got a whole carriage of people that have uh, recognised me start singing this song. Yeah. Where am I supposed to put myself? No, what am I, I supposed to do? Also, you know, there's been so many situations, but also when my children were young, which was around that period of time, I know for a fact it impacted my children. I could be walking down the street with my wife and my, and my young children and people might shout across the street. You know, what are they shouting? Why are they shouting at you, Dad? I'd have to explain to them, you know, come on, it's all right. They don't mean anything by it. So I'm always having to assess the situation. And I'm going to be perfectly honest, people that know me, people that might see me or have seen or heard this, I've not always responded in the way that people expect me to respond. Because I'm a human being. Mm. You know, why should I tolerate that? Mm. You know, when I'm playing football, pretty much as an, as an athlete, you focus, you just concentrate. The best place for me was in the centre of that pitch playing football. It coincided with um, me losing some form, which happens to everybody. Um, I had to really kind of regroup. Um, I think it put the manager under pressure at the time. He had to look at me and decide whether I was going to continue to play in the team or he was going to take me out. He took me out. I wish he didn't. I wanted to really plough through it and work my way through it. The Nottingham Forest fans to this day have been incredibly supportive, you know? Um, but you knew the difference when you was around away fans. You just felt it in a, in a completely different way. So yeah. leading up to that stage, as I said, I had to deal with different elements, just racism. You know, racism for what it is, colour my skin. Yeah. But then from then on, it turned a new page where I had to deal with something else. And the fact that I'm continuing to have to prove to people, you know, I, I am articulate and yeah. I'm not that stereotype. Yeah. And also, you know, without harbouring on about it, it's important to point out that 
the point I made about dreadlocks and you say you understand how it impacts people. I was proud to grow my dreadlocks. You know, for black people, it takes a long time for them to grow their hair. Um, family and friends, they wear their hair in that style also. So many people are grieved. So many people have wrote to me and asked me, you know, what are you going to do? What have you said? Why didn't you go and look for him? Why didn't you do this? What? And it's like, okay, it'll happen. I didn't feel it was for me to ever come and track you down and find you. I thought at some stage we would bump into each other and I'm amazed to this day that we haven't. I'm slightly amazed. And, I, and, I, and I played at Stamford Bridge and I tell yeah. people this story and I was told that you was in the stand that day, but I, who would know? And it was when I was out of the side and we was losing 1-0 and I'm on the bench. The worst place to be a player when you're under pressure is a substitute because you feel everything and you hear everything. And I would have to warm up at Stamford Bridge. We're losing 1-0. Your team, people know about it. And at this stage, I'd cut my hair. And I could feel the pressure. But for me, what it would do, it would kind of galvanise me to say, hold on a minute, I've got an opportunity to go out there and shut these group of people up because the, the last thing they want to see is me have a good game. Mm. And I went on and I scored. Mm. And it was 1-1. And I celebrated with the Forest fans. And that empowered me. You know, that gave me the courage and conviction to say, you know what, I'm going to come through this. And I did come through this. I had a long, long established career in the game, coached, you know, for the best part of 10 years, managed, played across all divisions. I work with current and former players all the time. You know, I'm not going to lie, it impacted me. And for people to have a full context and understand, I think it's important that I explain that no, off the I back understand. of what you've said. And people understand that I wasn't being petty. I'm not that sort of person. No. It, it, <laughs> Jason, just, it had Jason, a serious connotation Jason. to it. Yeah, I mean, you don't need to explain any of that to me. You're, you're so, obviously, none of your reactions have been anything but dignified in this whole situation, in my opinion. Um, by the way, just one thing that is possibly worth saying, I think one thing about that show is we just love footballers and football. And the love of the game meant, from our point of view, that we thought, and we crossed the line, I'm not denying that, but we thought taking the piss is how we express our love. So even sitting here now with you taking me to task in ways that are incredibly appropriate, I'm still thinking he's a professional footballer. He's amazing at football. And I'm still, there's a part of me that is still just happy to be in the presence of a professional footballer because I, I don't, it's hard for you to perhaps hear this, but we took the piss out of you knowing that you were amazing at the game, knowing that you were an incredible, like a thousand, a million times better than anyone else that we would ever, you know, come near at playing that game. I knew you were a brilliant footballer, even as we were taking the piss. And I, I know that doesn't help, but it is true. You don't have to tell me what you can achieve or what you did achieve as a player. I, I, I know that. And in the, in, in the way that we, someone did once say to me to really love something, you need to be able to make fun of it. And I know we crossed the line in the way that we made fun of you totally. And I know it impacted on you, but we always knew you were an incredible player. Well, it's, it's nice to hear you say that now, you know, <laughs> I think if that would have come out uh, maybe earlier, people might've, understood but this is as I said I've I built up that 
that resilience. And I know as a footballer, it was ingrained at an early age that you have to be able to deal with criticism. So that was never an issue for me. I could deal with whatever was thrown my way. Didn't mean I should have to deal with it. No. You know, but it was fight or flight. I, I had a choice. I was that game, by the way. And I saw you score. And I, you know, I, I, I just thought he's brilliant. I just thought he's obviously brilliant. He's obviously a brilliant player. That's all I thought. But I'm not, but I wasn't, I was too scared to do what I'm doing now, which I know has taken too long. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah. So whilst you was at the game, did, was, was people looking at you? Was people asking you anything? I mean, did, I think so, I'm playing yeah. the game yeah. and you're, you're there and we're, we're linked. Yeah. I think they were, but not in a, any other way than making like a sort of weird kind of self-consciousness about, oh, this is Jason Lee and you're David Baddiel and there's this weird connection between you, dysfunctional connection between you. But, I mean, as you say, you went out and scored. And it, here's the thing, it's not like I, I, I watched that. as In your head, I'm this guy who just thinks, oh, he thinks I'm shit, right? That's and I don't think that. I think, of course, he's scored because he's a brilliant footballer. Uh, and, and it's hard now, I think it's hard now to, to make it clear how within the structures of being a comedian, making fun of something doesn't equate in your mind to not thinking that person is great at what they do or whatever. But I, I get it now that you have to do that within limits. And I think with, at that time, I didn't get that didn't get that and I lost sight of as I say everything we talked about and everything that you've said you know it makes me feel terrible to be honest but it absolutely needs to be said and needs to be heard by me I mean as much as I hold you accountable for it because you was the person that obviously costumed up I still hold so many more people accountable it was it BBC too at the time mm. you know people you was working with you know, whether it be Frank, family and friends. Was there anybody at any stage that said, hold on a minute, maybe you're going a little bit too far here? Well, I think uh, we finally realised that. The problem is it became, of course, popular. So that's part of the problem. I'll tell you one person who did. You've mentioned him already, was Stuart Pearce. Uh, when we recorded the Three Lions video, um, he was there. And he basically... He just said 
Jason's incredibly angry. And at that point, I think I thought, oh, he's, of course he is. And it's what we thought we could get away with as it's just a joke. It's not a joke for the person on the other end of it. And we did start to stop doing it at that point, but it's too late. It's too late. But in answer, so nobody checked you. Nobody said, hold on a minute, you know, maybe uh, you're going too far here. Not at the point, not at that point, no. Because it was successful. And well, it, and because, it, and because the, you know, within the culture of the time, which again, people use it as an excuse. I'm not using it as an excuse. I'm trying just trying to answer your question. There was an acceptability at that point in time to that kind of comedy. And it's, it's not acceptable. And I'm not saying, oh, it was all right because it was then. But I'm trying to answer your question as to why um, there might have been not enough people saying, hold on a minute. Hmm. Okay, I mean, we've spoken about my situation and we'll continue to do that, but, I mean, can you give me maybe some context or some examples of, you know, some of the situations you've had to deal with in terms of suffering racism? Well, yeah, I mean, so the the reason that I'm I'm wanting to talk to you within the context of this documentary, I mean, I'm, you know... I've read your book, by the way. Right, thank you. I want uh, £6 back. <laughs> Yeah, I'm giving it to you, <laughs> definitely. Uh, although, you know, did you enjoy it? I wouldn't say I enjoyed it, but yeah. it was important that I read it. It's okay. about doing my research and homework, and well, yeah, I would have learned something, and I did learn something from it. Um, so, in terms of f football, one of the most extreme examples, which I've already mentioned, but I'll enlarge on it a bit, mm. uh, in that book of uh, what I think is the failure of people have in the way that they think about racism at football to include Jews in that is that for many years, me and my brother would sit at Stamford Bridge and hear people not just chanting the Y word, but chanting songs about Auschwitz. Uh, they would hiss, uh, the Chelsea fans would hiss at Spurs fans to simulate gas chambers. Yeah. Uh, and there would just be endless stuff whenever that came up directed at, you know, Jews or directed in their minds at Spurs fans, but as Jews, we felt it as Jews, right? If someone says, fuck off, Yids, right? And then you say, but I'm Jewish. And they say, well, I mean Spurs fans. I feel that as a Jew. Yeah. And then one particular occasion, the whole crowd was chanting, Yido, Yido. And then a bloke who literally was 10 rows behind us just started shouting directly at me and my brother fuck off yids, fuck off yids, and then fuck off Jews, fuck off Jews, over and over again. And my because point, they recognised you and they yeah, knew who you was. Yes. And my point is not that there's anti-Semites and racists at football. My point is, by that time, that was 2008, by that time, uh, the programme had in it a bit saying anyone seen or heard doing any form mm. of racist or discriminatory chanting will be ejected for life. But no one, no steward did anything, nothing. Yeah. And eventually my brother had to stand up and take this bloke on. Mm. And there was nearly a fight and it was horrible. And my brother sat down and said, I think I'm going to cry. Now, that The was, emotional outpouring, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. It, no, it was really horrible. And, you know, we've, we had sat at Stamford Bridge having incidents like that for, for years, mm. for years and years. And that's, I mean, it's not the only thing, but it's one of the things definitely that inspired that I thought, okay, I have to talk about this. Yeah. Um, and 
it is also definitely part and parcel of me coming to understand how wrong it was what happened to you. That's usually the case with people. I know, uh, I know. Once they've experienced that before, it, then they've not really got a full understanding of how it can affect other people. It, it's interesting, kind of weird, how you know we have experienced something similar, which is being well-known, being on TV, and then having an ethnic identity suddenly means that people can use it against you. The man shouting fuck off Jews at me is doing it because he's seen me on telly and he's seen me talking about being Jewish and feels empowered to do that, yeah. right? So I completely understand how, how wrong it was to do that to you, to put you in that position, to make it worse for anyway, for the racist that exists anyway. That's the point. Yeah. I make it worse for you. We know that there's racists at football. I then, we then make it worse for you in ways that are incredibly unhelpful and, and wrong. But I know it anyway because what I know is there's racists at football who don't like Jews and the football establishment is not helping that by saying, yeah, 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 we really want to kick out racism at football, but we can't even hear this particular racism. Mm. I mean, what actually happened was, as well, was that we then went to, me and my brother went to kick racism out of football and said, can we at least make a film about this phenomenon, which is like ongoing, yeah. uh, all these clubs, and they basically weren't interested for uh, quite a long time. They did eventually get behind it when Gary Lineker got behind it, but mm. before that, we were really struggling to get them to acknowledge that there might be a problem. Mm. I mean, have you ever considered the fact that it, it might not be the message you know, it's the person maybe delivering that message, i.e. if you're going to kick it out, who may well be predominantly black people who would maybe know, you know, your history. Um, maybe they wouldn't take you seriously, but they certainly would take, you know, the anti-Semitism seriously. So I, maybe I, that's been a hindrance to you to... Well, it's definitely been a hindrance yeah. to me. I don't actually agree with you as regards to that particular moment, because that particular moment, they straightforwardly said, we don't think this is a problem not you, they said, we, we, we've got this campaign and that campaign and this campaign and we don't think this is a major problem. And I know from the 10 years or so since we started doing that, that it's taken a long time to make the various people who monitor the uh, racism in football to take anti-Semitism anti seriously as a problem. Okay. I do know, obviously, I know from Twitter and all the rest of it, that part of my attempt to talk about anti-Semitism, and I've become very, for better or worse, like focused as, as someone who does that in Britain, that some people will obviously bring up what happened with you yeah. as a way of saying, well, how dare you? But I mean, my feeling about that is firstly, I, I have acknowledged and will continue to acknowledge the wrongness of it. Not, we all have done wrong things. And I, I guess the main thing about it is I'm trying to talk about the racism that affects my own minority here. Yeah. Uh, I'm not comparing myself to him, but Malcolm X was an anti-Semite. He said anti-Semitic things. That doesn't take away from what he said about black liberation. A minority, a person who speaks about their own racism may have all sorts of things in their backstory that was wrong, but the points that they're making about how their own minority is treated still should be taken seriously unless there's an issue with taking that racism seriously, I think. I, I agree with you on that point. You know, I do agree with you on the point that you should still be able to talk about it and people should take you seriously. So the point I was just trying to make is that sometimes it's not it's not always the message, it's sometimes it's the messenger, you know, that's trying to 
engage with people. No, I agree. And, I agree with that, Jason. Obviously, I agree with that. But, yeah. but I, what I think is that life is really complicated. Of course, we're talking about something. You know, we're talking about all the different cultures and ethnicities. I mean, it's hard. You have to separate all of them. You know, that's the big thing, and you have to treat them all equally. Mm. You know, when I'm talking about EDI and the nine protected characteristics, you know, I'm asking the people that I'm speaking to, what's important to you? You know, because obviously I'm here today talking about racism because that's what affects me in my day-to-day. But what affects you? It may well be homophobia, disability, you know, mental health, whatever it may be, sexism. So everybody's got their own agenda in that Mm. respect. So when we're talking about this, I know how hard sometimes it might be to actually feel that you're being heard because other areas are are more louder than yourselves at the moment. You know, in terms of yourself... um, and I know you're doing, you know, a documentary and bits and pieces. You mentioned in your book about allyship. Um, elaborate. Who who do you feel should be a good ally for you? I mean, I would say to you straight away that I would be an ally. And I'm an ally for so many people. Like in the moment, I'm focusing on the women's game. So I'm an ally for the women's game, okay? And I'm an ally to anybody that's you know, going through discrimination and fighting that, you know, regardless of. You know, I've got family and friends who live in Stoke Newington, a large Jewish community, and my aunts lived there for the best part of 50 years. And I can tell you for with, with certainty that there's a real strong connection between the black community and the Jewish community in that area. They yeah. all live there together. She's got 50-year-old friends, you know. I went to her 80th birthday recently and they was there. There was people there and it was like, it was good to see. This yeah. is a, these are communities coming together, supporting each other, who can probably identify with the struggles that, you know, that we have to go through. So I think it's about doing the work for all of us, yourself, myself, other people doing the work. A lot of people talk about this, but are they actually doing the work? So mm. in terms of allyship, you know, who do you see? that you could work with? Who would be good for you to work with and go alongside? Well, you would be brilliant, I think. But, I mean, and you are, as you say, an ally. I mean, one of the things is that there used to be, and, I mean, you've just given a personal example, and I could give you some personal examples of fantastic uh, allyship that I've had from people of colour. But it used to be the case uh, that there was a genuine, like, amazing connection in civil rights in the 1960s in America there was actually an organization called the Jewish Black Alliance and rabbis marched at Selma with Martin Luther King across that bridge. But that has got a bit lost, actually. Um, I don't really know exactly why. I think it's partly because race has become so polarized in America, particularly. uh, And that's sort of where all that stuff seems to originate, you know, all the sort of big, big divisive stuff about race. So I think for me as a Jew and my sense of talking to other Jews is that we would totally want to help the voices of black people in their struggle. Uh, And that is allyship. And definitely it can come back. It can come back. But at other points, there feels like that relationship isn't what it was. It's not quite there in the way that it definitely was where I think that Jews who came, like my own... I don't know if you know this about me, but my mother was born in Nazi Germany um, and only got out at the last minute and her whole family was murdered. Um, And 
So I come from a situation where very kind of extreme anti-Jewish uh, aggression sort of is, is in my bones. And I think that there was in the sort of like 60s and 70s or whatever, because of that experience that a lot of Jews had had, a feeling of seeing that black people were being discriminated against violently, particularly in America, and so they wanted to reach out with their own experience behind them, right? Like experience like my mother's family had had. But I, I, it, it doesn't feel to me like it's quite there like it was. I mean, it sometimes is. Sometimes, I mean, a good example of how it's frayed is like when Whoopi Goldberg, I don't know if you saw that, but Whoopi Goldberg was on a program in America called The View, and she said she described the Holocaust as not about race. And, and that's just wrong because the Nazis saw Jews as an inferior race and the Nuremberg laws were described by them as racial purity laws. So one of the things that's very important to me is for people to understand that anti-Semitism is racism. It's not religious intolerance. I'm, I'm an atheist. That would get me no free passes out of Auschwitz. I would be shot immediately by the Gestapo. But, but, but that sometimes isn't, isn't seen because... I don't know. There's a because of, of colorism. And that's yeah. why I'm saying we've got to do because the work. Colorism. So, yeah. you know, some people may perceive that a Jewish person is white. And, and we know there are black Jewish people out there as well. So yeah. we shouldn't forget there are, there are black Jewish people out there as well. Well, my niece is mixed race. My right. niece is mixed race. And I've spoken to her about the struggles of trying to make those two identities in herself right. come together. And, work. and it, sometimes it's complicated because she, you know, up till this point, she's like in her mid-20s now. She's identified entirely as a black person, but she wants now mm. to own her Jewish identity. Yeah. So we've had conversations about that because it's sometimes a bit more elusive. Like, what is a Jewish identity, particularly for someone who's lived their whole people life? People would only know if she told people, right? But she yeah. wants to tell people. Yeah, and I think that's good. great, you know. But part of that is thinking there is no, there is no friction really there. We are both members of an ethnic minority that suffers violent racism. As I said, my mother whole family was murdered mm. by race, essentially by racists, right? Yeah. And and so I think one thing that needs to be, is important for me actually, is that in this thing about saying, right, is, is anti-Semitism, is anti-Jewish racism being taken seriously, it's very important to me, because I know some people can feel this, that I'm not trying to throw any other minority struggle under the bus here. I'm not saying, please, like, Jews, it's most important to talk about. It's not. I'm just saying... I perceive a neglect of that in the conversation, but the conversation is limitless. Yeah, I understand that. I think it's important, as I said, to, that we don't place one person's experiences above somebody else's because, as I alluded to earlier, we've all got our own personal struggles that we're trying to deal with and our own fights. And you mentioned your niece. I mean, she's a similar age to my daughters. And I know they keep me on my toes in terms of, you know, how the world's evolving. Yeah, you know, young people. Yeah. So you know, we're of an age. Um, we we've got to do the work. You know, I'm learning all the time, continually. You know, I think we have to listen to the younger generation because they see things in a different way as well, and they can challenge us. And I like to think she's challenging you. Yeah, and, oh God, and yeah. off the back of this, or my own children. Yeah, exactly. Well. That's what they're there for. And you know, maybe she give yourself props. I do. You know, myself, my wife. We're glad that our children feel that they can have the voice, and this is what it's all about. If we make people more aware of the nuances around language and colorism, you know, it's deep. But during the pandemic and the George Floyd and this and the other, 
there was an appetite for people to have this conversation. And mm. I was having this conversation more and more. Mm. And I'm hoping it doesn't go away now that we've returned to some sort of semblance of normal life. But the work continues. It continues for all of us. You know, we're, we're in a space where we can use our experiences maybe to help people, even the experiences that you've been through, the fact you've come here today. You know, I do a lot of restorative justice work with people where, and this feels a little bit like that, where you, you sit down with people and you listen. Can you just explain that? What that, I, don't... I mean, I do I do stuff with, whether it be players or people that have wronged, right. basically. And the idea is to help them. Can you yeah. help them understand where they've wronged? Yeah. Because we can all scream and shout at people and say, yeah. you're this, that, and the other. But you're going to close up. You're going to be defensive. You're not going to listen. So our job is to explain in a way that you can understand. And listen, I know you're an intelligent man, so you get it. The fact that it's taken you so long has been my biggest disappointment, but I know you get it now. Yeah, I know? do get it, Jason. And also that thing about shouting is interesting because I think, you know, we, we live in an increasingly polarised society with lots of people shouting at each other. You know, one of the, I did a documentary about social media before this one, and it was about why people are so angry. And for, for me, the way that I thought about it is a lot of people want to be heard like everyone wants to be heard but unfortunately one way in which some people think they can be heard is just by being more and more loud and angry and whatever and if what you're saying is that no that's not the way the way is to try and explain and find nuance and educate and bring people together then that is the only way forward because otherwise definitely otherwise people just carry on shouting at each other and there's no I think you get a feel sometimes when you speak to people if they're you just can't work with them yeah. You know, you're too far gone. Yeah. And I had no idea how I'd feel when you walked in this room and this conversation could have gone left or right. You know, at the end of the day, if I'd have felt that maybe you're not listening and this, that and the other, I would have been able to tell from your body language. I think it's important that you give people an opportunity to maybe look at themselves and see if they can evolve, see if they are prepared to do the work. As I said, yeah. it's never it's never done. No. Because people are going to, have different views on things and it's going to change. And, you know, we get stuck in our ways. Well, in my day, yeah. you know, this is how we dealt with things. Well, we have to kind of move away from that thought process. It's a different time now. Yeah. You know, and I think also with the fact that, you know, I'd imagine you want to continue to work in this space. You know you have to do the work. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a no-brainer for you. Yeah. If you don't do the work, people won't allow you to to continue to operate. No, so. I think that's completely right. It's all about empathy at some level, about understanding how, how the other person and the other minority, what, what, how, they, how they think, how they live, how, they, how everyone is human and individual. Mm. And that can get forgotten. You see, because at the heart, the way that people think about, uh, the way that the racists think is that they deny that individual humanity, right? Yeah. Um, and as I, as I said at the start, we were doing that to you we weren't thinking about you as an individual, as a real person. Like when you talk about, obviously I know this about you and obviously, you know, I'm glad, I'm deeply grateful of your acknowledgement of how I've evolved. But at the time, I'm not thinking about you as a person with, you know, this history and this family and all this stuff. Once you talk about that, then of course you start to think about, well, you know, the, 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 the stereotyping falls away. See what I'm saying? The yeah. same because the same thing happens with the bloke shouting "fucking Jews" at me, is he's not thinking of me as a person. No, of course, he's not. thinking of me as a some weird stereotype, some hateful stereotype in his head. Yeah, you know, and that's 
what I'm trying to do today and what I hope to happen here is empathy. Oh. It's like it's like okay, here is a person. I have thought about you as a person since those sketches, definitely, but I haven't been with you in the same room, and that's what you need. David, um, I've kind of alluded to the fact earlier about doing the work. Um, do you really know what that means, what that entails in terms of doing the work? You know, we've spoken about allyship. I've, I've kind of told you what it is. I'm prepared to do what I do on a day-to-day, and I will kind of follow on from this question, but what is it? you know, you can see yourself doing? Well, I mean, so I am focused on anti-Semitism at the moment, um, but I think one thing I try and do as much as possible within the context of talking about it, so I do do a lot of that stuff. Yesterday I was at the Holocaust Educational Trust talking to 400 people, including Holocaust survivors, but including a range of people not all Jewish. Like, so there were a range of uh, ethnicities there. Uh, because one of the things that's very important to remember is, firstly, that all the Holocaust is not a Jewish issue. Uh, it might involve, obviously, Jews centrally in their identity, but the Nazis tried to kill many ethnicities. Uh, and also, it's something that everyone needs to understand uh, in terms of their own vulnerability, whoever they might be. Uh, so I always try, to the best of my ability, maybe sometimes fail, to, uh, when I go and talk about these things, is to place the context of me talking about anti-Semitism in the context of other struggles, right? And to try and make... Like, I never talk about this particular issue of trying to make anti-Semitism more visible as an issue without referring to, you know, the fact that I'm aware of how much needs to be done for other minorities and how much still hasn't been done for other minorities. And to some extent, the... My whole argument is, right, so these things that we, we talk about, white privilege, white supremacism and all the rest of it, mm. which are deeply affecting other minorities, they affect Jews as well. Yeah. But in so doing, I hope that I'm still drawing attention to those things. That's important because, as, as, as you pointed out, you know, as much as we focus on what's important to us, what's dear to us, is that we include other people in that conversation. And, you know, I spoke earlier about, Currently, you know, we've got the Euros. Yeah. Whenever this goes out, but the women's game, you know, allyship, and we need more men to get behind and support. You know, the well, women's I really game. support the women's game. Certainly, I want to feel, as an England fan, that uh, the Lionesses are totally uh, a team I get behind as much as the men's team. Um, and, and actually, I really like watching women's football. I, I don't know what you feel. What was the last game you went to? I haven't been spot. to a game oh, recently. Go, yeah. I watch it on the telly. Okay, I'll be honest with you. I go, I'm basically a Chelsea fan, right. and yeah, I've been, I go to England men. So maybe you're right. No, that's bad. You're right. I should do that. No, I, I mean the reason that. I say that I, I, I have conversations all the time with whether they be professional footballers or people within the game, and obviously general people, you know, men in particular. And you know, I'm watching the games, and you know. Whenever this goes out, I'll be at Southampton this evening. I was at Brighton on Monday. You know, I'll go to the quarters, the semis, and hopefully the final if, if, mm. if the women make it. But just reminding people, you know, whether you're in a WhatsApp group, you know, just how people slip into it, how men refer to the women's game. And I'm not watching that. But you're a football fan, right? And you love football and you enjoy football. And it's during a period where there's no football other than women's football. So why wouldn't you watch the women's game? Like, mm. it, it makes no sense to me that someone would dismay um, or completely go away from supporting the women's game. And I, I can vouch, you know, I've coached women, young girls, 
and technically they they put the work in. You know, they're focused, they listen, they're more attentive than boys. Yeah. You know, they do the work. Yes, the games are played at a different speed, um, but it's a very exciting game to watch. And we need, obviously, more more men to watch the game. But, you know, that aside... No, well, I was going to say, just... Like, the fan element well, the is fun, obviously well, a lot more well, okay, so hospitable. I'm going to say a tiny thing that I did yesterday, but for me, there is something in it, which is I talk about football when I'm watching it on the telly. I talk about it online, right? Mm. And I think the way to talk about the women's game, and I did this yesterday. I mean, I'm not, it's not a big deal, right, Jason? But it's a, but it's a thing, which is I was watching the French-Belgian uh, game, yeah. and I just t- tweeted, oh, like, the, the French are really the team to watch here. Right, that's what I felt on watching it. Uh, and, the, and the point is, don't make a thing of like, and I'm, this is the women's game and I'm watching the women's game here. It's just talk about it like you would talk about it watching any other tournament. Exactly. Right? I mean, I would just say whatever I feel when I'm watching uh, the Euros about the men's game and don't make a distinction with the women's game. I mean, I particularly felt it with... I mean, I don't know what you think, but I thought the French team looked brilliant No, yesterday. they are strong. I mean, you've probably got five teams, you know, French, Germany... You've got Belgium, you've got Holland, you've got England, obviously, who are considered favourites with us playing at home. But as I said, if you're an England fan, if you're a football fan, people should be getting behind their team. You know, the Lioness is playing mm. at a stadium near you. They're playing up and down the country. You know, the stadiums need to be full. And go and watch, you know, the other women play as well. So, you know, it's a, it's a lovely time. The, the women's game is growing all the time. I sit on the FA Women's Board. I do. You know, so to elaborate... I'm going to ask you what you think about. It. You know, there's a present conversation going on about yeah. the lack of diversity in the in the England team. Visibly, yes. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's always going to be noticeable. You've got three players in the current squad, and that's a conversation that's being had. How can we improve the talent pool and ensure that? I mean, football, I think, has become in the women's game what it became a little bit elitist. Yeah. You know, I like I'm a very good tennis player, and I know when I was young, I couldn't get on a tennis court. You know, it was all privatised. I would have to climb fences. I was lucky to get on a tennis court. And a lot of the ethnic minority areas, they're unable to get to training. They're unable to get the facilities. Yeah. And they're being, you know, not included in... But that isn't the case in France or whatever. Well, you know, I can't speak for France. You saw, obviously, they've got probably five or six in their starting lineup. So it's very visible and evident when you see that. And... You know, knowing, as I said, sitting on the FA Women's Board, that they are now prepared and they are doing the work to ensure that we can't not include, you know, certain groups who might not be able to afford it, who but might I don't not think have it's the support. better for the sport. I mean, that's of what course, I mean, is, of course. Is, you know, there's a moral issue, but there's also a straightforward of issue, course. which is we will be a better side with a wider the talent. The talent is talent there. Pool. The talent is there. It's just. You know, obviously, people have not had the opportunity to get into these elite um, RTCs, you know, regional talent centres. You know, that's what they call them. And you have to be invited into those groups. But let's make that more accessible for everybody. So the idea is that, you know, the the women's team will be more diverse and it will be just like the men, you know. So, you know, hopefully we'll move towards that. I mean, I think think you're right about, I mean, I I definitely should go to a game um, and I don't, I don't think it's because I genuinely really like the women's game and don't have any sense of like it as any kind of inferior to the men's game. Uh, I'm just like quite old and don't go out that much. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it's looking like 
England might do really well. Yeah. So yeah. from that point of Every view, chance. I, I will definitely want to go. You'll probably jump on the bandwagon like a lot of people and <laughs> want to get tickets for the final. But I might do. Listen, it's better late than never. <laughs> I, I might think, tap you up, Jason. Well, you tickets. won't get my plus one. I'll probably tap my wife or one of my daughters. <laughs> yeah, but well, no, if you can get a ticket, if you can get a ticket to one of the games that yeah. you know, I've, I'm sure you'd come away, you know, having you know really enjoyed the experience because yeah. it's a different environment. So actually, it feels. One thing it does feel, I could be wrong about this as well, and this might be stereotyping, but it feels like like a player got sent off yesterday for Belgium, I thought unfairly, for a second handball as a second yellow card. And she just went, no complaining, whatever. Yeah. And I sort of did a part of me thought, it, <laughs> and I apologise if this is sexist, is the woman's game nicer, is what I thought. Well, maybe they've got more manners and more yeah. respectful in that respect. I get that. But I'll tell you what, some of the challenges that they put in, you know, some people want to say that the women's game is is going to be weak or softer. They are brave. Yeah, I've played, actually, against... I played in Ghana. I played for a Comet Relief team okay. in Ghana against uh, a Ghana women's team. And they were very, like, quite... Not dirty, but they were certainly went in hard. Yeah. Uh, and I've played against Chelsea ladies as well for a, a mixture of... You know, right. old players and people like me. And again, I just thought... He was well, impressed, right? Of course. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. Another question I was going to ask in terms of what you think should be done, you know, in terms of football and Tottenham in particular. Mm. You know, you've you've been to games. I'll tell you what I think could and should be done, but I would like you to lead off with what you think could and should be done, you know, for the fan experience around right. anti-Semitism. Yeah. Well, okay, so one of the things about the chanting of the Y word and the associated anti-Semitism around Tottenham is, I always try and make it clear, it's not just about Tottenham. It sort of starts with Tottenham because those fans have chosen to, who are non-Jewish in, in the main, we're talking about this notion that there's loads of Jewish fans, most of them are non-Jewish, and they've chosen this word to identify themselves, mm -hmm. which is, apart from anything, appropriation. It's not their word. I remember when I first brought it up, someone on... Twitter said to me, it's not your word anymore, it's our word now. Well, that's not their wow. decision to make. It's That's a Jewish decision to make. And I can tell you, no Jews said this word means Tottenham fans. It's owned by Tottenham now. No Jews said that. Mm. So it, it happens all over the place. It happens at Chelsea, West Ham, Arsenal. It also happens, by the way, at, not around Tottenham, but at Ajax. There's clubs in Italy that are associated yeah. with, they become the Jewish club or whatever. And what I basically feel and it's, it's, you know, in terms of like you talk, talking about me taking a long time to do this, which I totally acknowledge, it's also taking a long time for Tottenham yeah. to acknowledge there's a problem here. Mm -hmm. So literally, so we started talking about, I've talked about it for about 20 years, but this film that we made called The Y Word came out in 2011. Tottenham have just, and they sort of buried it a bit on their website, said that, that the club now wishes to disassociate from that chant. Um whether or not that will have any impact on the fans, some of whom feel it's an affront on their identity and chant, chant, start singing things like, we'll chant what we like, all that, I don't know. Yeah. But I think the key thing for me has always been, this is not actually about football, right? People like Tottenham fans will say, you're a Chelsea fan telling us, well, it's nothing to do with that, I'm a Jew. Yeah. I'm a Jew feeling that what you chant is A, offensive, but more importantly, leads to people calling me a fucking yid mm. in my own stadium. No. And that surely is not acceptable. No, I agree with you 100%. And for me, you know, in terms of what football can do, and Tottenham particularly, yeah. 
I think it would be helpful if they took the lead, you know, yeah. because it's their club that identifies with that word, you yeah. know. They should be working stronger, you know, with their fans and their security to ensure that they do. I mean, what's the next step? You can say, you know, can you stop using the Y word in the stadium? But what action are you actually going to take off the back of that? There are protocols in place right. that the FA have put in place around all discrimination yeah. and anything that's seen as unsavoury. So it might not even be a protected characteristic. There are other words that I don't want to elaborate on, but there are things that are said towards players that people think that's crossing the line. Yeah. Now, there's a protocol in place where it can be brought to the referee's attention. It can be brought to the fourth official a stadium announcement can go out. You know, you can send the warning out to all fans in the stadium that if you continue with this behaviour, right. the referee may be forced to remove the players from the field of play. So there's there's something that that but, club but, could in, but you that know, would be impose. Great. And it would be great if the FA got behind that. Okay. They would get behind it. Right. But it, it's the club that would set that ball in motion. So here's something, Jason, right? So obviously, I've been going to football since the 70s and there was loads of racism in the 70s went unacknowledged or whatever. But... But gradually it got better. It did get better. The policing of it got better. There's obviously still racism at football, but the policing of it got better. But what you tended to hear was like individual arseholes. I remember I moved, I had a season ticket in the what was the Matthew Harding stand at Chelsea. And there was a bloke behind me when I moved moved to that stand. It was incredibly racist about Desai, about Marcel Desai. And I called him out and called him out about it. And he just carried on doing it. But anyway. The difference, I guess, with this particular thing is it's not individuals. It would be like 20,000 people chanting, yiddo, yeah. right? And and one thing that I don't think people understand is Tottenham fans think they're doing it positively, which yeah. I don't agree with anyway, yeah. but Chelsea fans singing it back at them are definitely not doing it positively. Yeah. And we're talking about that being quite hard to stop because it's a mob. It's not And I, I can identify with that, with the same with the pineapple chant. Yeah. As I said, Forest yeah. fans would sing it in support of me. Right. But away fans, it was insidious. You just, you know, I, you feel, you get that I, feel. Yeah, so good. You it. get the tone. So I can fully understand that. I mean, when I say I feel Tottenham could do more, should do more, I think it falls on them as a club to do more. You know, if it's a small minority of people, this is what really frustrates me around when people talk about discrimination in in the stadiums, that's a small minority of people. If we're all doing the work and we educate enough people, you should be able to challenge those people. It's about giving people and empowering them and giving them the courage and conviction to say, hold on a minute, like, like you've stepped up, I've stepped up many times. I don't want to hear that, mm. you know? You know, switch it on its head. Mm. There should be a majority of people that really home in on that small group of people, make them feel uncomfortable. How is it they're able to come to a stadium and still continue to, you know, frustrate and and, well, and be discriminatory towards people? I mean, one of the, I mean, I, I, I did get involved a bit in this. When, when the taking the knee thing happened, uh, I, I was on the Today programme, you know, the BBC Radio 4 programme, and they, they asked me about that. Uh, and I said, look, what's happening here is they're taking a stand against racism and they're also the team that we're supporting. This is when England were doing it. Yeah. And I can't imagine who it is who thinks it's a good idea to boo their team doing something like that just before they're starting to play. Yeah. You know, what, what on earth, what kind of fan wants to do that, right? But if you make them feel incredibly uncomfortable, you know, if there's that person, I mean, I've been in situations where I've heard somebody say something inappropriate, whether it be to a female or whatever it may be, mm. I felt that it's my responsibility to say, hold on a minute, 
don't speak to that person that way or you're out of order. That's the point. If it's a if it's a small minority, there should be enough people within that stadium. But the problem you've got with Tottenham, which is what we're talking about, is that there's a large group of people yeah. that are saying this and singing this. So, yeah. you know, it's going to need to be taken in hand to the point that, as I said, maybe the game does get stopped. Maybe they do continue to make those announcements, continue the education. You have to follow a process up until you see change. I mean, it's okay putting little points in a programme and on a website, mm. but what's the action going to be if they continue to do well, to do that? I, I, I'm totally behind you. I haven't seen anything like that from Tottenham, that level. As I say, the, mm. they put it on their website, we disassociate ourselves as a club yeah. from this chant. That isn't what you're talking about, which is mm. a much greater form of process yeah. to try and really stop something happening. And it is difficult to stop mm-hmm. hundreds, thousands yeah. of people who all think they're doing something okay. That's the other problem. They all think they're doing something, you know, they say, we're just getting behind our club here. Yeah. So it is really difficult. But, I mean, to say something else, which is, this is this is allyship. You saying that, yeah. you as a black person saying this anti-Semitism should be challenged in a big way, that is allyship, and I am grateful for it. No, 100%. And as I said, it's not about you, David. It's no, I know about, it's not about me. No, I'm just telling yeah, you personally. Of course, it's about the cause. And as I said, some people pay lip service to, to doing the work, and we have to continue to learn and have these open conversations in the workplace or whatever it may be. But ignorance is not an excuse anymore. Mm. I think there are more and more people now that have an understanding, especially coming out of the George Floyd and the pandemic, mm. you know, people maybe was forced to listen and have these conversations. A lot of people, oh, not again. Yeah. But you know what? You have to be listening to what's being said. Yeah. Otherwise, you will be challenged. Yeah. And it and football's a workplace as well. Mm. You know. Right. So we, you know, we could take it to another level and maybe talk about players. And my focus is, you know, on players. You know. Yeah. If players was to bring it to our attention, and if a Jewish player was to say, look, I'm being discriminated against. 100% that person will get the same support as any other minority group. You know, we're backing you, we're there, we're going to call people out and we're going to ensure that you get, you know, the support you need. So for me, there's no hierarchy, which is what you allude to in your book. You know, no cause is more important than another. I think we've all got to be um, understanding of everybody's struggles, you know, and be prepared to listen and learn. So. No, I really appreciate it. I think if you've got any more questions or anything else you want to discuss, I'm happy to do that. But for no, me, I I'm, think I'm we've... very, you know, just to say once again, thank you. Thank you for allowing me to come and talk to you. I know it's been so long. I know we talked about that a lot. I'm going to say sorry again. Okay. I'm happy to keep saying sorry. Uh, but I am on a human level very grateful. No, I appreciate that. And, um, you know, thank you for taking time. I know it's been a difficult conversation, it had to be had. You know, we can look forward to change and maybe we can look for that win together. Yeah. You know, it might sound corny, but this is what we're doing the work for. Yeah. Um, I'm Jason Lee. This is the Absolute Lee Podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. Thank you very much. <laughs>